You may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're talking about household codes, a term that Martin Luther was kind of a, it was attributed to Martin Luther, so a 500-year-old term where Paul is dealing with uh, the most basic of relationships. So he's talking about wives and husbands, children and fathers, servants and masters. Now, we've already spent two weeks on that in one degree or another, so I don't want to go over everything that we've already covered, some of the general observations, why those three categories, how they relate, and some of the basic truths out of this text that we ought to get. But I do want to make a few very basic comments. Number one, that Christ is the standard for all these instructions, whether it's wives or husbands, children, fathers, servants, slaves, masters. In every case, Christ is the standard. If, uh, if you've surveyed the passage at all, and I think I've got it here somewhere, you can easily see that Christ is the center behind everything that's said. Uh, if you go back even to verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And wives submitting to your hus- own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. In verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then again down in verse uh, 29, just as Christ does for the church. In verse 6, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And bondservants, you serve as you would Christ. And then uh, masters, uh, recognizing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, speaking of Christ. So in, in all those instances, Christ is always the standard. Now that's important because the implication is this. What that means, however we are called to submit, because in verse 21 we have that statement about submitting to one another. However we're to submit, whatever that looks like, depending on your category, the standard is not defined culturally. The standard is defined by Christ. So Christ didn't say, or Paul didn't write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now what I've got to say to wives and husbands isn't going to go well if I really told you what Christ wanted you to do. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some principles out of our culture that then when you wind up in the 21st century in your culture, you can make certain adaptations to make it fit. What Paul writes to those categories of people, it's independent of culture. East, West, modern, postmodern, ancient. It's independent of that. Christ is the standard in all those cultures, all those countries, all those languages. That's very clear from this text, and I think it's important. But we're going to go on from that because really that's just a review point. Let's talk just briefly about wives and husbands, where Christ is the standard. And these are the longest instructions in all the Bible, not only the New Testament, but all the Bible. I think for wives, in Ephesians, there are 61 words of instruction in the English Standard Version. I didn't count them in Greek, because English is easier. Actually, it's so easy, I put it in my word processor and it tells me. So there were 61 words in the English Standard Version. For men, there's twice as, more than twice as many. There's 153 words for men. So that's a lot of words, and there's more words regarding this 
relationship between a wife and her husband in this text than you will find anywhere else in Scripture. Now, the kissing cousin of Ephesians in the New Testament is Paul's letter to the Colossians. They were written at the same time. They're roughly in the same vicinity. And when Paul writes to Colossians, it is greatly reduced. The 61 words to wives is reduced to 11. The 153 words to husbands is reduced to 11. So I would have named Colossians the cliff notes, but he didn't. It would look like this in Colossians. Verses 3 and 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Eleven words and he's done. For husbands, 153 words reduced to 11. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And that's it. Ephesians expands on that. Ephesians adds a lot of color. A lot of depth to the picture. It ought to be enough what he wrote to the Colossians... But we wouldn't fully grasp or appreciate all the nuance of what Paul is envisioning or what Paul knows that is not communicated to the Colossians. So Ephesians colors all of that in in much greater detail so that we understand why Paul gives those brief commands to the Colossians. The most important thing he says in Ephesians is this mystery is profound And I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. Out of everything that he he has added in Ephesians, the most important thing he said is that verse 32. It's the key to the whole passage. And it's really the center of the whole passage. This passage is really not about wives and husbands, in spite of the fact that everybody's been to churches and probably seminars or maybe retreats. You've certainly been to weddings. And everybody talks like all of this is about here's what wives are supposed to do. Here's what husbands are to do. And by the way, uh, it's a picture of Christ. It's not just, and by the way, it's a picture of Christ. That is the message. And if you don't understand that central message, you're going to not understand what is, is given to the wives. And you're not going to understand what is given to the husbands. Now, here's what I told you last week, which I'm, it's somewhere between, uh, it's kind of true, but it's not what Paul intended. It looks something like this. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, what I told you last week from Ephesians is this. Wives are to submit to their own husbands, and in doing so, they model Christ's submission to his father. That's what I told you last week. That's a true statement, but that's not really what Paul's saying in Ephesians. And I know it's not what Paul's saying in Ephesians because the key is verse 32. What I'm talking about here is Christ and the church. And my conclusion is we're modeling Christ's relationship to his father. And that's not what he's he's writing these words about. It's not about, you're going to model my relationship to my father. You're going to model the relationship between Christ and the church. So while it's, it's kind of a true statement, what I said, but that's not really what Paul was after. And he would be disappointed. And I thought, why did I, why did I miss that so badly? And the reason why I think I missed that so badly, basically it boils down to, it's one of the few times I've ever taught the Bible where I've, I've been so... 
uh, I've taken such a overview approach to the whole thing rather than working through it very slowly. Because when I was working through it very slowly this week, I was like, ah, boy, did I miss that. It was partly that and partly I read some John Piper stuff. And John Piper made me go, oh, man, did I miss that. So I thought, I really can't move on without correcting it. Partly also because I don't expect to live so long I will ever teach Ephesians again. This is the first time I've ever taught it in my life. I don't expect I will live so long to have a second chance. So I want to go on record at being a little bit closer to the truth than the first time around. So I think to make my statement reflect the key to the passage that it refers to Christ and the church, it would look something more like this. Wives are to submit to their own husbands, and in doing so, they model the church's submission to Christ. And I, I, I'm true to the context, and what Paul says is most important out of everything I'm writing. It is modeling the church's submission to Christ. Now let's add the guys to it. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, I did get this part right last week. Husbands are to love their wives, and in doing so, they model Christ's sacrificial love for and headship of the church. And so in the instructions that are given both to wives and husbands, both are are part of this package of, of being a type or a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church both in the church's submission and in Christ's headship and in Christ's sacrificial love. Paul refers to this disclosure as a mystery. He says, this mystery is profound. That word in the Greek, if you translate it literally over, like put it in English letters, the word is mega. So really, if you really wanted an accurate translation, Paul would say, this is a mega mystery. And that would be more accurate than profound, actually. It's a mega mystery. This is a, an utmost type of mystery. You already hopefully know. Mystery is a word that's used 27 times in the New Testament. 20 of those times, Paul uses the word. Paul's the one that uses it mostly. And out of the 20 times Paul uses it, he mostly uses it in Ephesians. I think it's, I think it's six times, but I... Six times in Ephesians. One of those places where it's used several times is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. And I'll skip over a page just because I'll read those few verses. This makes the point that a mystery in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's the disclosure of something that previously was hidden, but it's no longer hidden. In our culture, a mystery is something that you start off reading it, and you're like, ah, you don't know who's done what. And you got to work through the process. And by the time you get to the end, all of a sudden at the end, you find out who did what. Or it may be you're like, ah, I'm not even sure what just happened there. Uh, I'm not sure how that works for you. But in our culture, a mystery is, is something not necessarily disclosed. It's something unknown. That's not true in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's... It used to be unknown. It's not unknown any longer. Now we know this thing. So look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4. 
Paul says in, in these words, in this part of the letter, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's not the only mystery there is in the New Testament, but that's the mystery that he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. The mystery is no Jew could have imagined or wished for that Gentiles would be brought in as co-heirs and fellow participants in all the blessings and riches of God's grace apart from Israel. Although, in some sense, it's not apart from Israel because to Israel, it was through Israel that Messiah was born. Paul makes that point in Romans as well. But the, the Gentiles didn't have to become Israelites. They didn't have to become Jews. They were brought, they were saved by faith alone. And that's something that was revealed. It was brand new. It was shocking news, but that was part of the mystery. So, let's keep building on this. What exactly is the mystery that Paul says is so profound in verse 32? Verse 32, this is is not the rocket science part. It follows verse 31. And verse 31 fits very nicely because it reads this way. And it's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's not the mystery. That was revealed in Genesis chapter 2. All right? I don't know that I I have to imagine. I'm kind of thinking we'll do like the early chapters of Genesis when we're done with Ephesians. But I haven't completely sold on that idea. But that's where I think I'm going. Uh, I don't think when God created Adam and Eve and he told Adam, now you need to leave your wife or your uh, mother and your father and cleave to your wife, he had no mother and father. But God, in his wisdom, had Moses write it. Here's a principle that starts in Genesis chapter 2. That a husband leaves his mother and his father and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. There is an incredible mystery or unity priority in this relationship that surpasses every other relationship. And that's established very early on. That's not the mystery. That was revealed in chapter 2 of Genesis. There are more than a thousand chapters that come after that one. So the mystery isn't that a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. The mystery is that if this refers to something far bigger than a man and a woman getting married. I mean, Chloe just got married yesterday, right, up in Wisconsin. You know, my wife is not home yet. She, well, actually, she might be home now. She went to Philadelphia. Her roommate got married. She went out to the wedding. A couple college friends went out there. So she's flying back now. She, they just pledged themselves in marriage uh, yesterday. A wonderful ceremony, right? But it is only a, a type or a picture of something far more significant. And it's the relationship between Christ and the church. So here's the statement that I think uh, is consistent with what Paul wants us to get out of this, it looks like this. 
The mystery is that all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, and before sin had ever entered the world, the institution of marriage was going to be a type, a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ's relationship to his church before sin entered the world. And what is that relationship? It's the wife submits to her husband, her own husband, and the husband loves his wife sacrificially in his head before sin. Because Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But in Genesis chapter 2, the principles laid out before we even knew sin happened. Let's, uh, let's keep building on this. How, what was Christ's relationship to his church? That's where we're in Ephesians chapter 5. What was that relationship? Which is what this passage is really all about. It looks like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, when it says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that's talking about his sacrificial death. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that he uh, served her by uh, helping with the dishes, uh, cleaning the house. Not that he wouldn't have done that. But that's not what uh, restores us in a right relationship with the Holy God. He died and shed his blood so that we could be in a right relationship with God. So when he gave himself up, it's in reference to his death. I know that's true. Because it's in some of those other verses I have there. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Which reads, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A sacrifice to God. That's the crucifixion. It's also in uh, verse 23 where he's referred to, I think there is our Savior. Verse 23, for a husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So he's savior, he's sacrifice, and that's what's being referred to when it says he gave himself up. Let's build on that. Adam and Eve is a, and this is completely conjecture, and I debated whether I should even throw it in there. And I, I'm, I, I did throw it in there, now I'm throwing it out there, but please don't get fixated on this because it is impossible to know. It's impossible to know, so far as I know. I have to wonder, since the relationship between a, a man and a woman in marriage is a type of something that is a profound mystery between Christ and the church, I wonder... If Adam, instead of participating in the sin, might have served as her savior, being sinless himself. And I don't know how, what that would have looked like. I don't know how that would have transpired. But he had not sinned at a point, And their relationship, a, husband's, a husband is to love his wife sacrificially, but he didn't love sacrificially. He participated in the sin. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Now, I don't, I don't know that that's even a possibility because Scripture doesn't hint at it other than I know our earthly marriage represents something much greater 
in which Christ is the fulfillment. So let me move on past that. Christ is the one who loved the church. Christ is the one who gave himself up for her. Christ did that not in spite of the fact that he was head. He did it because he's the head. And there's a difference. He didn't give himself up in spite of the fact that he's Lord, creator, savior. In spite of that, he did it because he's that. Husbands are to love their wives, not in spite of the fact that they are entrusted with headship. They're to love their wives in such a way because they're the head. Entrusted with leadership to a degree uh, in the family that no one else is charged with. There are three purpose statements in Christ giving himself up for the church. Those three purpose statements all have the word that, which is the same word in the Greek. So uh, that he did this, that he might sanctify. He gave himself up so that he might present the church to himself. He gave himself up that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's look at those one at a time. Number one, he gave himself up that he might sanctify her, set her apart. She's going to be different. She's going to be unique. Got not, uh, I don't believe the Bible teaches universalism that everybody at the end of the day, God's just going to be like, oh, shucks, everybody gets in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just have a party. He gave himself up for this bride, his church, that is going to be his bride in a celebration feast in the kingdom of heaven. He sanctified her. He set her apart. And, and a good question is, how did he do that? How did he set her apart? And the answer is right in the text. It says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's at least starting the process. Because so long as we're on this earth, it's a lifelong process. But it starts the sanctification process, setting his bride apart as special is starting with cleansing her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, I will tell you that there are no amount of pages that have been written as to whether that is water baptism or not. And I will tell you that there are very good, respectable people that say, yes, it's water baptism, but certainly not apart from the word, the gospel. But where the word is faithfully preached and people receive it, with faith, it's accompanied by water baptism. And they believe that with all their heart. And other people are going to say, this text is much higher than any water baptism. When it talks about cleansing her with the washing of water with the word, the washing of water is the word. It's the word that cleanses you. And yes, water baptism pictures that, but that's not in view at all in this passage. And good people disagree. It is not teaching a baptismal regeneration. It's not teaching because you get yourself wet. The wetness takes your sin away. It is a picture of sin being washed away, but the wetness itself does nothing. If there wasn't faith received, if there wasn't a gospel preached, if there wasn't repentance, if there isn't life granted by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. Let me give you some references uh, that I think support the idea that the, that word with is usually translated in or by. 
With is about the third most popular usage. It's translated probably, I know it's over a thousand times, it may be several thousand. You could read it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word. Or having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. Those would actually be uh, more consistent with the way the word is translated. But let me give you some very popular verses. In Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord speaks to Israel and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, when God talks about this new heart and this washing and this cleansing, it's not literal. You can't touch it. It's an operation of the spirit of God upon your heart where he gives newness of life. Another passage that I think is relevant are Jesus' words in John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he says, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. You're not clean because you got in a baptismal tank. You are clean because of the word. The, the word, the gospel cleanses you. And that is why you are clean. That's why Paul can refer to uh, Christ sanctifying the church with washing and the word because it's his word that makes you clean. One last passage. Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of those Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All that cleansing, all that washing, all that newness is a work of God's grace and by God's power. It's really not something you pour in a glass of water or fill up in a tank, and that's what accomplishes the feat. That is just a picture of what God has to do in order for us to be clean. Let's go back to purpose number two. Purpose number two is so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That's purpose number two. So he's he's done this washing, this cleansing. He's setting apart so that he might present the church to himself. That word present is a word that's used lots of times in the New Testament. Uh, When Jesus was a little infant, uh, a little bit older than Solomon, uh, but when he was a little infant, his parents, Joseph and Mary, took him to the temple to present him according to the law of Moses. Here he is, our firstborn child, the firstborn son. And so uh, there are certain uh, sacrifices or routines that had to be performed because he was presented as the firstborn son. Jesus, uh, there's several references. I want to try to get them in order. And I have no idea where I'm at in my notes right now. Let's see. How about, uh, okay, the second one would be in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus, uh, he'd been crucified, uh, resurrected. In Acts chapter 1, it says, he presented himself alive in the presence of many witnesses. 
Take a look. I'm alive. You can touch me. I can eat. I'm alive. This isn't a figment of your imagination. I'm not a phantom. This isn't a ghost. He presented himself alive. In Romans chapter 12, Christians are said to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Present it as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter... Romans chapter somewhere, Romans chapter 14 says, all believers, in this case, in the context of Romans 14, all believers will present themselves before the judgment seat of God and give an account. Now, the Bible usually translates that the word, they will stand before the judgment seat, but it's the same word present. One day, you will present yourself before God Almighty, and you will give an account. And in Romans 14, the context is, is basically how you treated your brother, how you treated your neighbor. Because in Romans 14, you've got some people judging other believers, and you've got some, some people in the church looking down on other believers. Because there's these matters of uh, Christian freedom and liberty, <clears throat> where everybody thinks you need to do it my way. And they're judging and and looking down on one another. And and Paul says, you know, there's coming a day you're going to present yourself before God. And you're going to give give an account of that. Yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. And so he he gives a little advice. Like, knowing that's coming, you might want to pay attention to this. Romans 14, if you want to check that out. So he's going to, Christ will, he's going to present the church to himself. In this case, he's going to present the church to himself, and he's going to do the church to himself in splendor, which is not a terrific translation, because splendor is translated as a noun, and it's an adjective. I mean, it just is. So there's other versions that do a better job. Uh, The New King James, for an example, says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, an adjective. Some Bibles say a radiant church. He's going to present to himself a radiant church, a radiant bride, a glorious church. What makes the church glorious? What makes the church radiant? It's not how much stained glass you have. It's not what kind of programming you have. It's not how exciting the music is. It's not how many people come. None of those things are what makes the church glorious or radiant so far as Christ is concerned. What makes a church radiant or glorious, so far as he's concerned, is a church that's been cleansed by the washing of water with the word. And he's able to present that church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It's a church that believes in obedience and godliness and holiness. And continues to confess their sins before God and one another. Because we recognize that it is only by grace we are saved and it is only by grace that we stand. And it is only by grace that we are kept. That is a glorious church. But that's not necessarily the church that makes the news. Third purpose. The third purpose is that she might be holy and without blemish. So the second purpose is that it's something for him. He presents the church to himself. Call it for, it's for the glory of God. And it's also for the good of the church. Sometimes in prayer, we talk about, we pray that something would be done for the glory of God and and for our good as well. Well, both those purposes are there. He presents to himself a glorious church, and then so far as we're concerned, it's for our good. We're holy and without blemish. And that's his third purpose. 
which takes us all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, because that's why you were chosen in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, the first three or four verses, that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. So what was true in Ephesians chapter 1 regarding, it's kind of looking at individuals chosen by God's grace to be holy and blameless. Now it's saying it's not only that you're holy and blameless as an individual, but as a community of believers. Because you know what? We may get saved one by one, but God saves you in a community. He just does. He saves you in a community. There's no one individual that is the bride of Christ. It's the community of God's people that comprise the body of Christ. All right, then you've got these strange verses, verses 28 to 30 of chapter 5, which seem, I, in fact, I, I think when I just briefly touched on them, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, they seemed like kind of a downer uh, after this high standard of husbands love your wife, Wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That seems like such a high standard. And then in verse 28, you've got, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And that just seems like you've, you've lowered the bar quite a bit. From loving as Christ loved to loving like you love yourself. Uh, and as I thought it through, and as I, and I'm reading stuff on it, and I don't know if John Piper made this exact point, but John Piper was really nailing a lot of this stuff. I think it goes something like this. The previous theme about loving like Christ loved the church, the previous theme is for a husband's love, no, the previous theme for a husband's love accentuated difference and distinction. You'll understand where I'm going with this in a minute. So the husband, it's, it's accentuating in the relationship, there's a unity with a difference. And the emphasis is on the difference, the distinction. Because a husband lays down his life for his bride. He does something on behalf of her. He is her leader. And there's a unity with a difference. But in this section, these verses 28 to 30, the second theme is for a husband's, the second theme for a husband's love accentuates union and oneness. Because in marriage, there is both distinction and difference. There's also union and unity and equality in the relationship. So the verses read like this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. So first of all, you've got he who loves his wife loves himself. That's point number one. Secondly, you've got that's just like Christ does for the church. Because Christ loves himself, he loves his bride because they are one. There's a mystic, sweet communion and union between Christ and his church. And so Christ lays down his life for his church. He comes from heaven. We sang about it in the church's one foundation. So when a husband loves his wife, demonstrating his love for himself, that's picturing Part of that mega mystery, that that's what Christ did for the church. He loved himself so much, he laid down his life for his bride, the church. And then it says, because 
we are members of his body. The reason why husbands are to do that is because that's what Christ already did for us. And since Christ loved us and we're members of his body, husbands ought to love their wives as they love themselves. That's also a picture of what Christ has already done. We're not doing anything new. Husbands are only called to do what Christ has already done and planned from all of eternity. So really, this entire passage, while there are principles for husbands and wives, this passage is not about husbands and wives. This passage is reeking of Christ and the church. And the husband-wife relationship is just meant to be a picture of something much grander, much more beautiful, much more perfect, but husbands are called to model it, as are wives. But husbands are given a lot more words, perhaps because, in a sense, the challenge is that much higher. Your comments and questions. Oh, let me get the mic. We're going to have to get one of these, you know, when we get back to our own building. I've already priced them. <laughs> Who's got a comment or a question? You don't get to do that. I have not been to another church that does this. Take advantage. No? Yep, Cindy. I guess I was just fascinated that Jesus presents us to himself. Yeah. That it was not, it doesn't say to God the Father. I mean, he presents... Yeah us to himself, yeah. which yeah. is a different, um, you don't think about that. I mean, you usually present it to somebody else. Yeah. I mean, we. it's easy for me to think what Christ does for us is for my good. Like, I am in such a better place that when I, I have hope of eternal life, you know, in, in the Sunday school we talked about uh, hope and resurrection from the grave, that I have this wonderful hope, this wonderful promise of the future, and that's good for me. But it's better than that. Christ saved me, not just so that I, I would not be separate from him for eternity, but so that I would be presented to himself. Like I'm in relationship with him for all of eternity. And it's perfect and beautiful. And it's only by what he's done that it, it ever happened. It's phenomenal. Anybody else? Joe. So <clears throat> going back to Genesis like you did, and you said that that the the verse um, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife from Genesis that that also represents even back then was representing Christ in the church. Yeah. But in the period until Christ came, was it to represent the relationship between Israel and the Lord, or? Uh. Because there's a long gap there. Yeah, but there's similarities, but there are differences, right? Because, uh, this, you know, in both cases, you are talking about a marriage relationship. But Israel was actually uh, the, the, the wife of Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah God in the Old Testament. So in this case, in the New Testament, you've got the church being the bride of Christ, and uh, the union hasn't taken place yet. Uh, Christ hasn't come for his bride yet. So the, the difference, there's a difference. It's not exactly the same thing. 
though they're similar images, the closeness of a relationship. So mystery, if mystery has the concept of you couldn't have known this before, no matter how hard you tried, but now it's been revealed. Like everybody knew that Israel was considered the wife of Yahweh because the Lord even in Jeremiah wrote her a bill of divorcement. Like you've been so unfaithful to me, you prostituted yourselves over and over and over, and he writes her a bill of divorcement, sends her away, then he takes her back. Because that's part of his own character and promise. But we all know about that. But the fact that Christ has a bride, a people for himself, that he's saving out of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue that, will be, that he will come for as his bride, that was news. Which is kind of the whole thing in Ephesians. Like it's this whole one new body. He's saved out of the two. One new thing. So similar, but not the same. Somebody else? Hannah. Um, so I like that you went all the way back to Genesis with that because it made me think, you know, submittance, the word submit is like a dirty word in our culture. We kind of hate it. But it's not like the result of sin. Um, a wife submitting to her husband was part of God's perfect plan. Yes. And so it really brings out how good and how perfect it is. It's not something that was forced upon us because of the fall, but it was just something that was part of God's perfect plan from the beginning, kind of like it was part of his perfect plan from the beginning to die for his church and, yeah. and love his church. Yeah. So It will always be imperfectly modeled by us because husbands are imperfect people. I mean, I showed you Rosaria Butterfield a couple of weeks ago, and she's like, no men are good, you know, and she can quote scripture and she's right. Uh, so no wife will model the perfect submission that Christ wants from his church. No husband will model perfect love like Christ modeled for his church. But it doesn't mean we should jettison the whole idea or give up on it because we're imperfect people. It means we ought to recognize we need the grace of God that we will be better than we are. By the way, here's one last freebie because I am, really am done with chapter 5 now. And the one last thing that I didn't uh, even include in my notes, but in verse 21, let me ask you a question. When it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that word reverence, it's the word where we get our word uh, phobia. So it can be translated fear. Um, I'm going to say that the general prevailing opinion, and I think it's right, is that the word fear in the Bible has a, has a semantic range. It has a range of meaning. The word fear in the Bible can mean you better be so scared your knees are knocking and you're falling on the ground. And that can be right at the right situation. There's other times the word fear means to revere or to honor. So in verse 21, when it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ... Is reverence the right word, or does he mean for us to be knocking in fear? I'm going to go with reverence is the right word. But let's just suppose, let's play devil's advocate. Let's say Samson says, I think it means you should be trembling in fear before Christ. I don't think it means reverence. I think it means you should be trembling in fear. Then my comeback would be, well, that's interesting because the exact same word is used in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Same word, phobia. And I think everybody is going to be okay with saying it's not teaching that wives should be trembling in fear before their husbands. But they ought to respect and honor their husband as the leader. In the same way, Christians, believers, ought to respect and revere and honor Christ as our Lord. The Bible, I don't think, in either case is calling for a trembling fear. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.